0: On this week's episode, we talk to Liz Bustamante about Brian Eno. This is The Operative. I'm your host, Chris Williams. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, So to start off, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Okay, my name's Liz Bustamante, and I'm currently living in Chicago. I was born and raised in East Chicago, Indiana, which is just outside the city, across the state line. And um, yeah, I uh, learned how to play organ as my first instrument, which is why I still have a weak left hand to this day. And uh, I, then my first job was actually playing the organ in church. Um, I was in a high school band uh, called Kalichi Bound, which was named after R.E.M. Lyric. I played in a, uh, an industrial band called Motherbacks, and then we changed our name to Fat Robert Smith Clones. Oh, no, I'm about to name like 30 different bands. But anyway, um, then I moved to the East Coast in 93. Um, And I started, uh, I had done sound for friends bands in high school. And it was when I moved to New York that I finally started taking audio seriously. I had, um, I've basically worked in audio in a variety of different capacities since I was 24, up until now. So Um, yeah, I've put together audio packages for film and video, did live sound, worked in studios, was a broadcast engineer, and now I write, uh, user guides for recording applications. So, yeah,
0: always music and sound. (laughs) Um, so, uh, so you wanted to talk about Brian Eno. Right. And, uh. In particular, Taking Tiger Mountain.
1: Yeah, so let's see. So Taking Tiger Mountain is his second record. Um, quite honestly, I was introduced to him when I was a goth high schooler. And and, and I wasn't introduced to him directly, but it was through Bauhaus, who uh, recorded a version of Third Uncle, um, which I just thought was incredible. So, you know, the way that when you find out who influenced like your favorite bands. And then you kind of travel back in time and start doing research. That was like, that was the gateway, believe it or not, it was Bauhaus. Um, then when I was uh, in college, so that was, yeah, that's high school. In college, I was paddling around with some friends who were big music heads and my buddy, John Whitney was playing Blank Frank which just blew my mind. That's from the first Eno album. And uh and yeah, it just sounded crazy. It had this like uh, you know, this junk 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 like rhythm and it sounded you know, we were listening to mostly like Pussy Galore and Minutemen and Sonic Youth at the time, so this felt like Of the same time, even though like, you know, was like, that was a 74 recording, you know, that song ended up on a million mixtapes and. uh, Then little by little started exploring the rest of the discography, bought some. Bought an ambient record and was just like, what is what is going on? This is not what I expected at all. You know, it was a. It was a lot of because back then there wasn't a lot of easy ways to find out about bands unless you were just buying the, the books written by the band members themselves, or there was a friend that was there to like talk to you about it and share stuff. A lot of word of mouth kind of uh, sharing
0: of loved material. So, yeah, that's why I was wondering if you purposely bought an ambient album or if you were just like, oh, and oh. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, I mean, I could see that it was uh uh I think it was music for airports that I bought and was just like, okay, that's interesting, and then just kind of like forgot about it. Uh to the point where a few years later when I started I think I also kind of was like, yeah, maybe this isn't really my thing. Maybe I just really like that one first album. And then years later, I ended up buying the album again only to say, like, oh, I have this. Like, you know, you know, it's one of those artists that I can't uh, I can't really buy, like walk into a record store and pick stuff up because I think I have this. Maybe I do. Maybe I don't. His discography is out of control. I couldn't begin to, like, name all the records that I have. But yeah, I keep coming back to this one because it's, I guess there was a period of time when I'd cycle through different albums. Uh, This one would be my favorite. I'd stick on that for a few years. I've done that with other bands too, like the Rolling Stones or David Bowie, where you just kind of are, you know, I'm just gonna listen to Huggy Dory and nothing else for four years, then uh, Low, then discovering there's like an Eno um you know you know bowie connection um so the actually so the first time when i was working that first job in new york where i was putting together audio packages for film it was the kind of thing where somebody would come to us and say i'm shooting a movie and i've got two characters in a car how do i like, I, what do I put together so I could record the audio? Or I've got a marching band in a football field. Like, what do I? What do I need? Tell me what microphones. How do I? How do I record this? So, uh, luckily, it was a really small, little independent shop, and it was just me working mostly with like two other people, and we would talk about music for eight hours a day, and uh, I mean, it was just. It was just that's that was all I wanted to do was like talk about bands and like, oh, did you know this about them? And uh, I think I might have been hung over one day. Somebody was playing something and I was just like, why? This, this, like, this is like, making my hangover so much worse. My head is throbbing. There's a weird echo. Everything sounds out of phase. And I was just like, what is going on with this music that you're playing? Like, it just, it sounds hungover. Like, what is this? And they're like, oh, this is, a, and I think that's when I first heard t- taking Tiger Mountain by strategy. And I was like, you gotta be kidding me. So I, I started listening. Be, I think I became fascinated by it just because it sounded so off and so weird. It's one of those things you don't realize until you say out loud. Like, this sounds hungover. This sounds wrong. I don't get it. Um, I started listening to it, and, yeah, if you were to put down on paper what this sounds like, if you've never heard the album and I were to describe it to you, it would, it would sound like a... Uh, a lot of bad decisions (laughs) it would sound like it's like okay well this one song has this uh you know maybe an air organ or something there's a lot of uh weird falsetto voices uh that sound like they should be you know it's like some monty python interstitial music or something there are there are children's songs there's uh off-key singing. There's a lot of uh, choir-type backgrounds uh, voices that sound like, it's almost like virulent. Then some of it was very, like, traditional British, what you think of as, like, the, you know, the the weird chorus of middle-aged Brits, you know, coming together to sing some kind of traditional anthem. And so, uh, Yeah, weird guitar sound. And now I'm saying weird. I still believe that it sounds weird, but it's in a good way. It's I've come around to well, I came around a long time ago, but just uh, just such strange decisions that have been made to put this all together. Um, I think it's I think it's kind of brilliant. And it's just, there's a little, it still manages to have moments where it's totally rocking. Uh, Brian Eno and his completely, you know, it's not a bad voice. He's certainly, uh, it's just, I, I don't think anyone has ever praised him for his vocals. You know, he gets, he gets praised for a lot of, uh, a lot of other genius ideas and production style. But, um But there's times when he'll sing a line, and it's almost like he's doing a real 70s soulful kind of diva take on it. And so, yeah, really interesting, weird decisions were made on this record. So um, I know that uh, this album, I think it was during the making of this record, he and his buddy Peter Schmidt started putting together the Oblique Strategies cards. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Yeah, card.
0: yeah, De- yeah. I, I, I've occasionally annoyed bandmates with uh, <laughs> make it sound open or so, you know something like that.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, the good one is like take the bass away. <laughs> the bass <laughs> players don't like that one. <laughs> um, yeah, they start. They said they started putting together that deck of cards. He, him, and his uh, creative collaborator Peter Schmidt did the artwork for the album he made some screen prints that showed up in the second album or that's sorry, the third album, another green world. And, uh, and they started writing down these ideas and I mean, some of the ideas they were just like, well, that just felt right. You know, they were, they were kind of, um, uh, finally articulating all this stuff that they had put together. And then when other musicians were coming in to play on the session, they were actually using the cards with them to, you know, like continue experimenting. Mm-hmm. Um, Eno's known for for just being. I mean, a lot of engineers are like this now, and this has actually become a very popular idea. But he's not interested in getting. It's not about like the perfect take. It's all about vibe. It's all about the feeling. So if it's like a great performance, you know, that's what gets left in. Um, I have this theory about the U2 album, what is it called? All That You Can't Leave Behind, I think.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, I believe so, yeah. Uh,
1: there's a song called New York, New York. So that, that U2 album is produced by three people, and I only remember two of them. Uh, Daniel Anwar, Brian Eno, and Guy number 3. And uh, there's this tambourine part in New York, New York that is so, like, deliberate, and like, it's like in the way, like it's not in the way. I mean, it works perfectly, but it's such a, like, look at me. <laughs> like, just, we're just going to add this like rhythmic element. And it's so, it just feels, I was like, oh, that's Eno. Like <laughs> That is exactly, I could be wrong, but I would. I think I'd like to believe that. <laughs> because so many of the things he does is just weird choices, putting stuff, you know like oh this this one thing is going to be really loud all of a sudden a lot of things that kind of call attention to themselves but somehow work together work together really well um i think that because i was always a musician that had like uh i was always a very lazy undisciplined musician never practiced and uh so, I have to admit that there's something that I like about his kind of wild, anything goes uh, style. I like the idea that there's like field recording sounds in there. I'm working on an album that I've been working on for a long time. Um, Pete from The Hype actually calls it Chinese Lizocracy because it's been, because I'm mostly not working on it. It's been like 10 years. <laughs> But I also like I used to be a huge field recorder and um, and still have ideas for like field recording albums that I would like to put together. And I'm definitely trying to incorporate that into it, too, in a, in a really small way. And he does it, too, in a really small way. So. Um, yeah, for people who are interested in recording and just paying attention to like details, he throws a lot of fun details in the mix. For people to listen to.
0: Did the spontaneity and stuff influence you when you were writing, playing, in bands through the years? Or
1: oh yeah, for sure. Um, I would never claim to be any kind of great improviser, but I love the idea of just kind of uh, winging it and uh, and kind of seeing what happens. Uh, sometimes it works and sometimes I would, you know, fall flat on my face, but, um, it's also been fun to bring people into the recording of my album and just say, kind of throw them in without any prep, because you, you do get a little bit of just like the spirit of the person in that moment, like a panicked, Oh, I have to play something right now. And, um, and I mean, I guess I'm not at all a control freak. I love collaborating with people, but there's something where if somebody is working on a part, you can get really attached to a part really quickly. And then when other people want to edit or change or that, you can get you can feel really protective of it and maybe defensive. So it's nice to have people come in and, uh, and, and just kind of spontaneously emit you know, create some creative line, and then later on you're you can kind of play with the elements and you can kind of add things, adjust things, tweak them if there's multiple takes, you can kind of combine it in a way that that you think works um i I did end up uh getting Brian Paddington to, to play guitar on one song, and later on he's like, "Well, I don't even remember playing that." it's <laughs> just like well you should remember it cuz it's very good <laughs> but yeah so i definitely like um i definitely like applying his ideas to to making music it's it it makes it more fun it's uh and maybe that is me kind of uh like i like i like playing with the limitations i guess
0: you know do you wish that there was more of that? Because, the, I mean, for, for the most part, and especially with, well, yeah, with a majority of music, you know, it's it's very scripted, you know, set in stone. These are the parts. Do you, do you think that m- music, I guess, overall would benefit in some way if it was a little more free?
1: Well, I mean, to be honest, I have been on the other side of this where I was playing in this math rock band. So I guess maybe it depends on the genre that you're working in, like whether that makes sense or not, or, um, you know, and then maybe improvisation works better. If you're a better player, (laughs) you could just, you know, uh, you know, you're, you're able to more easily access like brilliance or something. But I was, I was playing in this math rock band for a few years it was the most I'd ever practiced with a band. Our schedule is crazy. We had practiced Tuesday night for a few hours, Thursday night for a few hours, and then we'd have a long practice on Sunday. Like it was a five or six hour practice. Uh, definitely the best my drumming has ever been. Like it was just so much, so much rehearsal. And, uh, and then we were getting ready to record And so everything was kind of locked into place. All the songs were getting tightened up and the guitar player broke his hand. So, and we had shows lined up and everything. So what we did was at least for the shows, we postponed the recording, but we got a couple friends to come in and play with us. And one of the things that was interesting about those of us that had been playing together um, so it's like, oh God, gotta start at the beginning. Uh, here's how this one goes, you know, like we've <laughs> been playing this song for months and we kind of, uh, it felt like there was this threshold of boredom where once you kind of passed that threshold, you got to lock in a lot more tightly with your, Your musician the other musicians in the group and then you kind of went to this area where somebody could be a little more spontaneous somebody can kind of change something up and you we just got to be really good at anticipating what the other person was doing and it got and so there were these really tightly constructed parts and then something would change or somebody would like flip the beat backwards and we could just fall into place just like we could just like find the pocket with each other really quickly so definitely not a hard and fast rule about improvisation i mean it's nice that i mean i guess that also means that if you practice enough if you're if you're so closely linked with your partners that you can improvise a little bit more on top of that because you've done the work of uh putting that song in stone and figuring out how it goes. So
0: So uh with Eno, is there a good place like is taking Tiger Mountain a a good place to start or 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 is it indicative of certain things like on the whole?
1: Um wow. Uh I would have to recommend records based on the individual person. I guess mm-hmm. I don't feel I don't feel like there's one like easy way in. Uh, some people would probably prefer the ambient stuff or uh, the the guitars and tape loop stuff that he did with Robert Fripp. No pussyfooting. Um, yeah, wow. Part of me thinks that taking Tiger Mountain as much as it has hooks, it's filled with hooks. As weird as it is, but maybe it's too weird. Maybe it's too yeah. weird for some people. Like I told i mean, it took me a while to kind of say what is going on here. Um, other people have said that it's really accessible. Maybe the first album would be the way to go, which is um, "Here Come the Here Come the Warm chats. That's got that's got the Bo Diddley, uh, Blank Frank, and that's got the. Uh, a couple really beautiful ballads and babies on fire which i think a lot of people would know even if they don't know Brian Eno. i feel like that album that that track is kind of made the rounds somehow uh so yeah maybe here come the warm jets or maybe even roxy music the first couple of uh of years that they were together he was an integral part of the band
0: is you know, still someone that you follow and that you'll still listen to or
1: Yeah, I do actually buy a lot of his later albums. I have so many. I and I'll always stick with them for a while. I definitely don't have that um I, I keep going back to taking Tiger Mountain. I kinda like stayed with that. Just like with um with the Rolling Stones, like I said I will you like circulate through having favorite records uh, as like, Oh, beggars banquet. And then, uh, I think with the Rolling Stones, I stopped on goat's head soup. <laughs> and then with Bowie, uh, like Bowie, I'm still going through albums and finding stuff that I really like. And, um, um, Oh no. What is the Bowie album that I've been listening to now? I can't remember. It's uh station to station. It's, yeah, it's it's incredible when there's, like, an artist that has so much going on that you could like, continue to dig and then stop and then keep going. Like, with the uh, – I got the Joy Division box set, and I listened to the first album so much – or the first disc. It's four CDs. And I just – I hadn't even listened to the rest of the box set. And then I got to the third disc, and I just listened to that. For, you know, I – when something stays with you sometimes it's all you want to do is listen to it over and over again
0: is there anything that you would like to see Eno do with with his career with music is, is there a do you, do you sort of just appreciate the diversity and and the spontaneity of what he has done and continues to do or Well, to be honest, he's done way too much.
1: (laughs) He needs to (laughs) leave some room for someone else. (laughs) Because he's, it's incredible. He's, uh, you know, he's done art. He's written books. He's written theory about music. And he's, uh, he's worked on apps. Like, there's, I can't remember the name of his collaborator, but there was at one point, there were three different Bowie apps like available in the app store, and what it was was these little tone generators that you can adjust certain parameters, for example uh, so it, it would be a color, and then you when you tap certain points of the screen, it was obviously some kind of x y grid because it would trigger sounds. And then you could determine whether it was going to keep going, whether it was going to stay the same, whether it was going to decay and fade out, or whether it was going to like mutate and evolve, and uh, and they would they were hilarious. They would have like the names for the sounds would be like paprika and bergamot and stuff like that, and uh, and it was just these beautiful. Um, it was just, like, a way to make spontaneous ambient music. Like, I would have it on an iPad and just, like, let it run. So, yeah, I mean, he's still producing. He put together the No uh, No New York album, uh, which was the, uh, the compilation capturing the no wave scene in New York in the late 70s. With Mars DNA, Teenage Jesus and the Jerks, and uh, the Contortions. He's just, he's done a lot. He's done so much. So I can't imagine, there's no, oh, he even made the uh, Windows 95 startup tone. (laughs) Which is, Yeah. yeah, he's got his fingers everywhere. So there's like, no area that I could think, oh, this is really benefit from a little Brian Eno. <laughs> Let's throw him in the mix. Um, yeah. Oh my gosh. Can't think of anything.
0: Well, if, if you could meet, you know, <laughs> uh, is it the sort of given like what, what you appreciate about what he's done? Like, is it the sort of situation where you'd be content to just ask him a question or would, would you be more interested in like, Oh, we have to have a meal. Oh
1: no. Oh gosh. What I've actually thought about is, um, Although I think it's too late for that, because I don't think he's as busy as he used to be. Mm. Um, I've always dreamt that the two places I've dreamt were uh, with him. Oh, no, there's a third. Um, John Bryan in California. And then when I read the Tape Op article on the Peter Gabriel's home studio, which is like A gorgeous English cottage you know I mean in all of those situations I've thought oh I would love to quit my life and go like apprentice with them you know like a meal seems just impossibly short you know I I I don't even want to ask questions it's not like I I want to ask questions it's more like I want to just be in the room like let me see the process I want to see how this person works I want to like learn from that. Like, let me sit in a in a studio with you for eight months. That would be great. Um,
0: to, to to just to observe or to kind of take take in and then apply it.
1: Oh uh, yeah, to observe, to assist, to um, it, it. Yeah, I think uh, just being able to see how they approach the different forms of uh, with him in particular all the different forms of art that he's involved with like yeah he seems so natural Um, I did remember reading that I guess he produced the Coldplay album Viva La Vida I think that's the name of it and apparently they were encouraged they were like oh we gotta use Oblique Strategies and I just think that is such a (laughs) <laughs> that is such a bad move, like <laughs> how embarrassing, I'm just imagining him stiff upper lipping his way through that session, I'm like alright, oh this again, this is only 40 years old. <laughs> I just can't even imagine, oh my gosh. So yeah, part of me doesn't want to be the like, like, oh man, <laughs> let's kick out over Brian Eno. <laughs> Like, oh, no, no, no. I just want to watch. I just want to hang back and
0: watch. The Operative is produced in conjunction with Radio Nope. For more information, visit radionope.com. And for all of our past episodes, visit theoperative.bandcamp.com. Thank you.